With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The old idea about ultimate human performance, the 10% brain myth, the idea that, hey, ultimate performance is us using, you know, if we only use 10% of our brain all the time, ultimate performance must be 100%. All of that is wrong. Today, for the very first time in history, pretty much anybody can have a global impact. When are we going to start printing houses and cars and, and... We are. The Chinese printed a single family, they printed 10 single-family homes in two days with a 3D printer a couple months ago. They 3D printed a mansion. You can see that. You can see these online. Just type in Chinese 3D printed mansion. They then 3D printed a five-story apartment building. Oh, my gosh. So so we are, like, we're here. Like, it's, it, it, is, it is really, really real. Steven. Steven, it's James Altucher. James, how are you? Good. How's it going? Good, man. Steven, where, where am I calling you, actually? Northern New Mexico. Northern New Mexico? Fe-ish. Is that where you live, or you're just hanging out there? No, it's where I live. You're not flying any drones around or anything? I'm not flying drones around. I have, I have to go to Los Angeles when I want to do that. Okay. And what about surfing? Aren't you surfing? No, I live here. I, you know, I'm a big surfer and I love surfing, but my wife and I run an animal sanctuary, which is why we're here. So we're in the mountains, northern New Mexico, because we run a sanctuary for sick and old dogs, basically. Um, and sort of do a, we, we, so it's sort of like the sanctuary and sort of a skunk works for canine elder care, which is something we're very passionate about. Um, so that's why we're in the middle of nowhere. But I'm also here because I'm surrounded. I have five ski mountains within an hour of me, including yeah. Taos, which is one of the best in the world. Wow. So, so it's, it's interesting. So when, when you're not, um, writing all these book, great, excellent books about the future, uh, you're basically saving dogs lives. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I do three things, right. I'm writing, I, I write the books. I, I, I try to make the world a better place for animals and I try to advance flow knowledge. So, Excellent. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's. A, I think. I think those are my three sort of mission statements. If you were to frame it that way. Well, well thanks for coming on the podcast again. And just to, just to um, summarize, you've been on for Bold, the the book Bold, the book The Rise mm-hmm. of Superman, which is about uh, how to achieve a state of flow in your life, and also Tomorrowland, which is again similar to Bold about futuristic technologies that are hurtling our way from from the future into the present. And so I kind of wanted to. Um, 
basically do a update on the future if that makes if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does make sense. I think there's 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 great astounding stuff to talk about virtual reality for sure. Um, cause I think that's the biggest thing that's coming next, but there's, you know, there's, there's really interesting news kind of in every category. So, so okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to go down the categories, uh, almost in the order that you mentioned them in all of your books and, and we can, we can discuss them, but I'll, I'll focus also on, on virtual reality as well. Um, uh, I got to tell I've got just so you know, just, just, I should warn you now. Um, cause it's actually, I'm like, it's, I, I, I'm writing about it. I have not dipped back into nanotechnology since abundance. So I have no, like a ton has happened. It has, I know nothing about it at this point. And I've got like, I'm going to start diving into nanotechnology in the next, next couple of months. But there's really, there's some interesting questions I'm working on about artificial intelligence that we could talk about and, you know, that are coming that way too. Well, a lot of this actually is about artificial intelligence. For instance, robotics. And, you know, the idea that blue-collar jobs will start being replaced by robots in five to ten years. And where, where, where do you see that now? And essentially, where's the limit where robots will not be able to replace jobs anymore? That's a tricky question. And I think it's a tricky question... Like even if even if we wanted well, the president of the United States to be replaced by a robot, probably that won't happen. For no, instance, so let me give you an let me, but let me give you an example of high how high up the level this goes. A couple years ago, I got a chance to go to USC and sit down with Ellie, who is the world's first AI psychologist. Ellie was developed by the military. The military had, as you know, a, a huge problem with depression and suicide, and their problem was. Okay, psychotherapy, you know, and talk therapy, especially for early warnings of suicide, um, is is very good. But how do you bring it to scale? We keep, the military can't afford, you know, psychologists for everybody. So they developed an AI psychologist. Turns out, a couple of things. One, soldiers actually prefer talking to the AI rather than real psychologists. They feel they're being judged by real psychologists, wow. and that real psychologists could impact their military career. They don't know if they can trust them but they trust the AI, um, so they open up to them, and they're getting incredibly powerful effects. So something you would never think is you know, vulnerable to replacement by robotics or AI, like psychology, turns out it is. And it turns out you know, it's, it's having you know, quite a good impact. And I, you know, that's interesting to me because I think when you can bring psychology to scale and essentially sort of give it away for free on, on some level, you could quite possibly raise the baseline kind of happiness of a huge swatch of the population, which is an insanely interesting, you know, idea to me, especially considering everything we know about, like, you know, links between mind and body and illness and performance and all those things. The downstream ramifications of an AI psychologist are truly fascinating and interesting. That is Um, fascinating. I mean, can people game that at all? Like, let's say a soldier wants uh, to be prescribed a certain drug. Can that be gamed using, uh, you know, once you sort of figure out the system? I, so here's, answer A, um, of course, right? Everything can be hacked. Mark Goodman, you know, Mark Goodman taught us that for sure. Um, B, you raise a really interesting question of, you know, do we need humans in the system? For sure, the one thing that we're learning across the board, and this is like if you're looking for some good news in the AI robotics thing before we talk about kind of emerging markets and things that are coming, the one thing that we are finding over and over and over again is the best 
resolution of every situation, the, the most efficient, the, you know, the most cost benefit, all that stuff is robots and humans working together. It doesn't usually completely exclude humans from the picture. There are certainly companies, for example, that will be doing that for cost-cutting purposes. You're going to see that, right? Self-stocking robots at Walmart, things along those lines. That's, that's coming for sure. But what's interesting is there's lots of places, there's lots of companies that are going to say, okay, maybe we have shelf-stopping robots, but we still want a ton of humans here because the interactions pays double dividends or triple dividends kind of thing. You get emergent effects, exponential effects, really interesting things. I think companies are going to go the human-robot merger way, saving, protecting some of the jobs, not all the jobs, but protecting some of the jobs that we think we're going to get lost because they're going to say it's going to be a value add, basically. What 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 are some of the ramifications you think on the economy? Like like when we switch from sort of uh, uh, horses to cars, essentially people in that in the horse industry were able to somewhat move over into the car industry, and it was I don't want to say it was seamless, but we didn't ha- the economy didn't feel a loss of jobs. I'm talking like a century ago. What what's the but but here it's different though. Eventually we're going to have like these self stocking. Um, you know, well, shelf-stocking robots. You're, you're looking in the wrong direction, I believe. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. No, I just no, think, I, I'm curious because this, this has come up on some podcasts and I'm, I'm really curious about the no, answer. No, it's, it's totally, it's totally, it's a hard problem. And the reason it's such a hard problem is we cannot see emerging markets. But the point of the whole, like if you look at history as a whole, every time a market has disappeared, a new one has emerged. So you have to ask two questions. One, are there new markets that are emerging? And I'm going to, I'm going to, come back to that in a sec, but let's just say yes for a second. The second question is, are they going to show up fast enough to save our butts, right? Like, doesn't do us any good if, you know, robots take our jobs in the next five to 10 years and all these new markets are 30 years away because we're going to have a global economic revolution by then, right? right? So that, those are big issues. And I think, I think the two things you got to talk about are one, and this is, this is a difficult complicated discussion, but uh, Jared Lanier, The Adventures of Virtual Reality, wrote a really phenomenal book called Who Owns the Future? And he has essentially argued that by giving away our data to social media giants and letting you know a handful of people make a ton of money off of our data, we have completely gutted the middle, middle class, the middle class, been gutted along the way by digitization of certain you know technologies and more is coming right lawyers psychologists all that stuff is, is going to be replaced in a large portion by technology so you've got this hollowed out middle class he says one thing that you need to start doing is paying people for their data if any company uses your data because more and more companies are making their money that way you get micro payments so it starts putting money back into the system that's fairly complicated and sort of requires a surveillance state to do. But yeah, it's I'm a little scared. It's an interesting idea, but, but I'm scared of the regulatory aspect of that. Like then essentially, I mean, Congress is not really the most sophisticated group to be regulating data on either side of the equation. So I, told, I don't, I don't think, I think it's gotta be a, I think it's gotta be a, a bottom up thing. I don't think it can be a top down thing. I totally agree with you. So, um, so that's interesting. But the other, th- the other thing is this, and more importantly, we know, and we've talked about this a number of times before, you know, 10, 12, 15 different lines of technology are now accelerating exponentially. So they're, you know, doubling in power on a regular basis, annually, semi-annually, whatnot, um, going faster and faster and faster. What we've seen in the past is every time technology has jumped to 
exponential growth patterns. It is created essentially in internet-sized market. And we saw it with the internet, and we saw it with apps, and you know, it, on, we saw it with computers, and on and on and on. We keep seeing this again. So you could at least you could at least say, okay, I think there's a huge market in all these technologies that are that are starting to come online now. Virtual reality becomes actually a reality this year, 2016. We're going to start seeing VR headsets coming up for so, a lot of reasons um, that I can go into if you're curious. VR, I think, is going to spread like wildfire. I think it's going to go crazy. And I think there is an internet-sized market inside of virtual reality. And we also, by the way, know this already. We saw back in, the, in 1996, I think it was, the first so-called virtual world was Second Life, Philip Rosedale's creation. And very quickly, within a couple of years, um, Newsweek, I want to say, put a, put a guy named Ashley Young on the cover, who was uh, the first person to make a million dollars inside of a virtual world, made a million dollars doing business entirely inside of Second Life. So we know there are markets inside of, inside of virtual worlds, huge markets and huge potential. And as more and more people start migrating into virtual reality, exploring virtual reality, it's going to boom. So there's a huge, huge, huge opportunity that's coming very, very quickly. Um, that we're not looking at. So I want to I, I want to ask you about that, and I want to get back to robotics in a second. But on the virtual reality side, what other than okay, I'm just being really naive here. The first obvious application is everyone's going to want to use it for for porn. Um, but what other what? And I'm sure there's gaming as well is going to be a huge use, and 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 games kind of like Second Life style games well, and so worlds. Let me, let me give you what. I, so there's lots of different like what's the gateway drug into virtual reality. Is, is the question in the sense that you're asking yes. what it, were the applications? Were the, not only the I gateway think, drug, but where we are in ten years. What's going to be amazing in ten years with it? So here, so so it, this is this is a little complicated, but I'll but I'll. So we know right now that video games are really good at putting people. They're very addictive, and they're very they're very addictive because they're very good at putting triggering dopamine reward loops. Right, mm -hmm. dopamine is one of the brain's most potent pleasure chemicals, and video games are addictive for this reason. So virtual reality, for a lot of reasons that are too complicated, can actually produce full-on flow states. So you get five of the brain's most potent pleasure drugs. This makes it extremely addictive, extremely pleasurable. What are the five? Uh, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and andamine, and endorphins. Hmm. So, okay, so you... Uh, so, so, so you now... One of the things that we know, you, I want you to ask me a virtual reality question, so let me walk you back there. What we know about learning and memory, a quick shorthand for learning and memory, is that the more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, the better chance that experience has of moving short-term holding into long-term storage. Neurochemicals essentially tag experiences and say important, save for later. Because virtual reality can generate flow, and flow produces these kind of five big neurochemicals, you see massively accelerated learning and flow states. In research done by the U.S. military, done by DARPA, snipers in flow, for example, learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. So here's where it gets interesting and where people are really excited is virtual reality allows us to build basically educational games that are totally addic addictive, right, because they can generate flow. They will massively amplify learning they're distributed, so you no longer have massive problems with our education system. And, you know, one part of it is access, right? There's millions of children who can't get to school, so virtual reality can solve that one a little bit. Um, and it also allows you to start customizing individual learning environments for individual students, which is 
sort of everything we've learned recently that you need to do to really amplify learning. So it unlocks education is sort of the killer app for BR. And so you want to know what you can do in there. For one thing is you could build schools in there that can do amazing things. So like, like give an example, like what can I learn in a, in a, in a VR setting? Real world setting is one thing. If I want to, you know, if I want you to experience Mount Everest, I can take you there, but very few people can afford to do it. And I can't, you know, unless you have a permit worth several hundred thousand dollars, right? Like you can't climb past camp one. So, or past base camp. So, you know, suddenly you can take anybody you want to the top of Everest to study atmospheric science and, you know, differences in climate and weather. You can take people to the polar ice caps to study global warming. You can go to Africa to study animals. I mean, it it allows you to go almost anywhere. Well, I mean, I'm going to bring up, there's sort of the positive element, and then I sort of feel like a small, scary element, which is that... There's a huge scary element. Like, by will the way. people it's be not small? It's huge, right? Like, will people want to just stay in a virtual reality forever? And by the way, is that such a bad thing? Like, maybe we all just hook up to these enhanced so experiences I forever. I so, Playboy is relaunching mm-hmm. in a couple of months, um, and they're refocusing on literary journalism, which is cool. And I've got an article in the inaugural issue, and uh-huh. it is literally about what I believe is going to be the largest migration in human history, which is the migration into the virtual world. I think we are within. 20 years of being able to create virtual experiences that are as much fun, as pleasurable, and as meaningful, and meaningful is really crucial here, as anything real life can produce. And I think, so you want to know where, why do I think there are, there's going to be, you know, an internet-sized market in virtual reality? I think we're going to be migrating into the virtual, and people are going to find ways to work there. So that begs the question then, so Facebook, which bought Oculus Rift, uh, you know, one of the biggest VR companies, maybe the maybe the biggest, I don't know. Is Facebook going to be more a virtual reality company or a social network in the long run? Well, I think that, I think your social network is going to go online. And I, by, by the way, I've given you a very esoteric thing. Peter Diamandis, right, my partner in Bold and Abundance, uh, talks. He goes at the, from a totally different direction. He starts with shopping. He's like, look, I go to the mall right now. I need a suit. I go to the mall, and maybe they got the size I want and the color I want in the whatever, but like in a virtual world, I go, they scan my entire body using a, a Wii sensor or to take your pick and the clothes, I, you know, I'm trying on clothes that are being projected on my body with a totally customized fit. I order what I want and, you know, Amazon drone delivery, it's there in an hour kind of thing. Um, I like this. Or the next, or the next day. So like, you know, there's really kind of commonplace. And, and one of the things that's cool about shopping and, and so we talked a lot in abundance, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, the idea that one of the things that is happening in Africa, for example, is they're skipping technologies, right? They're not building landline telephones in Africa. Everybody's, you know, jumping to cellular. So they're skipping technologies. They don't have shopping malls in large swatches of the developing world. And suddenly everybody who's going to have a headset, and I will argue the companies are going to start giving away headsets for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper in the way they give away cell phones because they're going to want your business. Um, and this is going to be the interface. Um, and you're going to start, like, you're going to, whole continents are going to bypass the shopping mall, which is, you know, and that, that has huge infrastructure impact as well, which is, I think, you know, I think a good thing, but this is going to walk us into a discussion about biodiversity. But it's going to free up a lot of land that we can repurpose for plants and animals and do a lot for the environment, which is cool. Interesting. That is interesting. So, so okay, I want to get back to the, 
drones, because you just mentioned the drones again. And, and this is just, again, my being naive. How does it work when Amazon sends a drone to deliver something to me? Or how well, will it work? For, so first of all, let's not talk about what Amazon is going to do because it's, it's not yet taking place. Let's talk about something that's actually real, mm-hmm. which uh, <clears throat> is – so there's, there, there's a Singular University spinoff company um, that, whose name just eluded me. and It'll come back to me in half a second. I'm just going to keep talking. They uh, have built kind of like in a lot of parts of the developing world where roads wash out, where disasters come in, where people have AIDS and other diseases that need regular medication and they can't get to the doctors. They built solar solar powered recharging stations for drones. So you can now use your cell phone, call your hospital, call in your prescription, your drone goes to the hospital. It picks up the, the drugs and, you know, flies them to your door. And, uh, this is real and it's being, this is happening now. Yeah, it's real now. It's going on. The first deployment was in Haiti. Uh, they did a second deployment someplace else. And I think they're now actually moving into Africa. Um, it'll, uh, it'll come to me in half a second what the name of this company is. Uh, Um, I was there when they launched. How does it work? Let's say there's, um, multiply this by a million. Let's say everyone's using drones for everything. How do you? I don't know how it works. How, I, how logistically? Like, you're asking great questions. I have said for a while now that the FAA and like organizations are going to have a miserable next 20 years. Yeah, because we've got they drones, can't figure it we've out. Got flying cars. We're going to have you know those hoverboards are step one, right? Like we're going to have you know floating surfboards pretty soon. It's going is to get that true? Really like, are you seeing work on floating surfboards? We're not seeing floating surfboards, but I, you know, my friend Desher Molnar, I wrote about this in Tomorrowland, right? Invented the world's first kind of it's a flying gyrocycle is really what it is, but it, it's a flying helicopter, and you know, those kinds of contraptions are coming. His is a kit version that anybody can build to drive, you know, better than a sports car and can fly. Um, and almost anybody can fly because it's really easy to fly a gyroplane. You can get a license, I think, in eight hours of flying time. Um, this is real now, and you know he's only the first. So let me let me ask you this. And we've we've only talked about a few of the technologies. I want to go over all of them. But just given what we've talked about, robotics uh, uh, and VR, uh, how uh, and flying vehicles to some extent. Um, how, if I'm sitting at my desk in my cubicle at some company and I'm hearing all this, I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm, I'm missing out. I'm 30, 40, 50 years old. How can I be a part of what's happening now? Like how, let's say I'm not a robotics specialist. I've just been working in sales and marketing for some company. Well, that, so that's the, that's the most amazing thing. And this, this is kind of the core, one of the core points that we make in bold. And it, the, the idea is that today for the very first time in history, pretty much anybody can have a global impact. And the re- one of the main reasons we say this is not only are these 12 technologies or 13 technologies or whatever de- developing exponentially, but they're developing user-friendly interfaces. So that's really cool. And let's, let's go back to robotics, right? Five years ago, if you wanted to program a robot, right, you wanted to introduce robots in your company or whatever and wanted to program a robot, you had to hire a fleet of computer scientists. And if you were doing anything sophisticated, you were essentially hiring computer scientists from like one of 10 universities in the globe. And that was it, right? It was a very limited pool. Today, we've got robots. Rodney Brooks, who invented the Roomba, that little vacuum cleaner, just invented Baxter. Baxter is the first user-safe, user-friendly industrial robot. And what I mean by that is Baxter is uh, this giant kind of nine-foot humanoid robot. 
at that. Um, it's totally human safe, so he's in bed. The sensors are accelerating exponentially, so Baxter's in bed with all kinds of sensors. So as soon as he contacts flesh, he stops moving. So for the first time in history, humans and robots can kind of work on an assembly line together, which was never possible before. Like before, we walled our robots off, our industrial robots behind bulletproof glass because somebody would lose a head if you went in the room. That's so we could have all kinds of robotic human collaboration we couldn't have before. Baxter's cheap. $25,000 was the initial asking price. It's probably lower now. And there are blueprints online where you can use a 3D printer to basically turn any existing robot into a Baxter. It's a little complicated, but so you can literally, if you have a 3D printer you can and a robot, you can, you can do this with older models as well. And the crazy thing is, you don't have to be a computer scientist to program Baxter. If you want to program Baxter, you grab his arms and you move his arms, and he's programmed. It's a user-friendly interface for industrial robotics. So suddenly, so what's what's an example thing I could I can program Baxter to do? Like, let's say, well, I, let me get. So I'll give you an example. There's uh, there's a jeans company in San Francisco that <clears throat> makes totally individually customized jeans, and they use Baxter on their assembly lines. And it's a total startup, hmm. um, and. You know, that's you know, one one example. And Baxter is of course the first version of this that we're seeing, but what we're seeing in all these technologies, even AI, right? AI is this crazy technology that, oh my god, you gotta be a genius to work with. Well actually no. IBM took Watson, their AI supercomputer, put Watson in the cloud and has invented kind of an open API, a user-friendly interface for Watson. So any company that wants to build, starting with medical companies, because they want to use Watson to drive medical breakthroughs, but any company that wants to build on the back of Watson, you can do it. So you can access a supercomputer through their user-friendly interface. And not only that, IBM has put up, a, I think it's $100 million to encourage entrepreneurs to do just that. So all of these technologies are open to Anybody. There's a crazy story. My favorite example of a 3D printing story. There's this woman, graduated Harvard, but she couldn't get a job, and she was living at home with her parents, and she was about 30 years old, and she took a standard, standard inkjet printing, uh, inkjet ink, and combined it with a 3D printer and figured out a way to print any makeup on the market with a 3D printer. And this one innovation, she's disrupting the $256 million a year cosmetic industry, which so, is crazy. So so what, what does she do? She puts all the ingredients for makeup in the printer and then... Um, so it turns, it turns out that a certain high quality inkjet ink, the color inks are biodegradable. They're totally human safe and human friendly and whatever. So she can basically have the printer print in... Um, whatever is the kind of the base powder of the makeup and add in those dyes and you get any shade, any color, any consistency of makeup you want. All those things can be set. Okay. So, so let's, let's go with this. Like, so what's happening in 3d printing? Like when are we going to start printing houses and cars and, and we are, we're okay. printing, we're printing both of them. In fact, so a couple years ago, Jay Rogers, the CEO of local motors, um, which is a new car company, company, localized car company that, does 3D print cars. He 3D printed a car in one day at a car show. There's now, get online and type in 3D printed cars. There's dozens of examples, including, by the way, in every car you buy on the market, standard normal car, packed with 3D printed parts at this point. Almost every engine you do, medical advances are even farther along. Um, we've seen the Chinese <laughs> printed a single family, they printed 10 single family homes in two days with a 3D printer a couple months ago. The homes were, I want to say, thousand square feet, maybe a little under that. 
Um, they were wow. small, but like think for disaster relief or something like that, and they were cheap, five thousand dollars. But also think home. of think of the modular aspect. Like if you could print uh, five one thousand square foot homes, you could probably put that together to print to, to have a five thousand square foot home and made in two days. Which they do. So there are, they've also done that. They printed a three D printed a mansion. You can see that. You can see these online. Just type in Chinese three D printed mansion. They then three D printed a five story apartment building. Oh my gosh! So. So we are like we're here. Like it's it, it is it is really really real. Which, be, which begs the, the question: What happens in ten years? Where are we going? Well, so architecture is going to massively change because complexity comes for free with three D printing, right? It doesn't used to be if you wanted to build a really complex shape, you had to take a ton of material and reduce and reduce and reduce. It was extremely costly and expensive and inefficient. Three D printing. Everything is for free. You use only what you need. So like making really complicated geometric shapes that have big circles missing and things like that. Um, super simple. We can print in multiple materials. We can now print in a, over 300 materials. Um, we're 3D printing in space. The last week they took this. This was missed in the news, but it's a huge deal. They took at, uh, Planetary Resources, Peter's company, that his asteroid mining company took a three. They built a 3D printer and they took apart a meteor, the printer takes apart a meteor and printed basically in the component parts in a meteor. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because when we're in space, we, one of the reasons we're not in space yet is because it costs $10,000 a pound to get something out of Earth's gravity well. It's really expensive. Mm. We need to be able to print in space. That's how we're going to build space stations and things like that that are actually used that we can actually move into. <clears throat> But you have to be able to do that with materials found in space because we have to take it up from Earth. Hmm. It, we can't afford it. So, it, you know, what they did last week was literally like a huge step forward for us colonizing space, which sounds crazy. But if you want to talk about where we're going, you know, in the, in, in the next century at least, like I'm, I'm, my next book, not the one I'm working on now, but the one after that, I'm, it's about the four largest exodus, four enormous exoduses that are all happening this century one of which is into virtual reality. Um, another is going to be into space. And what's the other two? Uh, one is going to be, the, I, I believe, because I think we're moving too slow, it's going to be you know, climate change migrations. M meaning which, we'll um, move out of Earth because of climate change? No, I don't think we're leaving Earth, but I'm at four largest migrations. The, the, what's going to shift demographics in the next 100 years? Mm -hmm. First, climate change. You know, Our coastal cities, the seas are rising and we're not moving fast enough. And so I think, you know, we're going to see that. And I think like culturally that, you know, we talk about that in terms of kind of disaster stuff and that's, you know, one side of it. I also think it's going to be culturally really, really interesting. Like what happens if people start moving north from Florida? You're going to start, you know, millions of retirees are going to suddenly pour into Kentucky. What does that look like? And what's the fourth migration? I think the fourth migration is from kind of the external world more into kind of interior states of consciousness. We're getting better and better at flow and altered states of consciousness. We're getting really good at exploring inner space and learning more and more about it. So I actually think the fourth migration is into our own kind of subconscious and our own mind. And how will that happen? I'm just curious. Like, is that, a, is that more uh, technology related? Is that drug related? Is that sort of... Uh... Well, it's all those things related. Um, it's, I mean, and you know, really is like it does it. So, a well, lot, what, will example, that, what will that look for, like for the brain just, too? Well, let's just talk about flow, for example. One of the things that distinguishes flow, there's a lot of other things going on, but is 
widespread deactivation of the prefrontal cortex, the kind of part of your brain that's right behind your forehead that governs most of your higher cognitive functions. Flow, that portion of the brain shuts down. And that's, and that's the part of the brain that we evolved essentially to adapt to different environments. So it's interesting that that's the part of the brain that's, that shuts down for this kind of enhanced... Well, not, so not all of it shuts down. You see hyperactivity in certain specific regions, but as a general rule, most of it is deactivation. So the old idea about ultimate human performance, the 10% brain myth, the idea that, hey, ultimate performance is us using, you know, 10%, oh, if we only use 10% of our brain all the time, ultimate performance must be 100%. All of that is wrong. First of all, we don't we use way more than ten percent of our brain. We use all of our brain at all the time. But it turns out ultimate human performance is the exact opposite. We're not using more of our brain, we're using less. Um, we're sort of getting out of our own way in a, in, a, in a quite literal sense. But to get back to kind of where we started with this, you can now use transcranial magnetic stimulation. They just did this in a really cool experiment in Australia to knock out the prefrontal cortex temporarily for 20, 40 minutes and create a technologically induced flow state. Michael Persinger at Laurentian University has built the God helmet. We know from research back into the 1950s that stimulating the right temporal lobe produces all kinds of quote-unquote mystical experiences, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, sense presence of the feeling that there's a God or an angel in the room with you. The list sort of goes on and on and on. Michael Persinger built a helmet that directs weak magnetic, electromagnetic currents, pulses really, into uh, the right temporal lobe and produces these same effects. He's now working on a version that you can incorporate into a video game or virtual reality. So you're now talking about so-called mystical experiences available on demand with technology. And of course, psychopharmacology is a whole other world that is you know, booming the amount of kind of credible wonderful research that's going into it right now is astounding. The results they're getting, you know, just in terms of health and healing um, are amazing. So let, let's take it like 10 years in the future. Let's, I'm interested in this. What, what's going to happen to me? What am I going to feel? What am I going to do? Well, I think 10 years in the future. So I'll give you, let's use a psychopharmacology example. Mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, the government outlawed MDMA ecstasy. They said this is, has no medical uses and, you know, high propensity for harm. And then scientists, you know, for a lot of reasons, scientists started testing it on PTSD. And we started treating soldiers with PTSD and victims of child abuse and sexual abuse. And you know, the current study shows that as little as one application of MDMA plus talk therapy is enough to completely end symptoms of PTSD for, it's up to four years right now, and they don't know what the cap is. The study's been running for four years. It is so exciting that the FDA said, wow, let's see what happens with depression and anxiety. And they have now approved MDMA ecstasy, the club drug ecstasy, for studies in depression and anxiety. So 10 years from now, if you fall into a bout of bad depression, you might be treated by a psychotherapist using psychedelics. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so again, like, so, so it's all exciting. And let's say again, I'm, the, I'm sitting in my cubicle, I'm listening to this, or I'm driving my car to work, I'm listening to this. How can I, I'm so excited by everything you're saying, how can I make use of this and somehow improve my life, improve my financial life, you know, get acclimated to this new world that's coming? Well, 
I mean, if you want to get acclimated to the new world that's coming, Abundance and Bold are really great places to start, right? And Tomorrowland, those three books are really a look at everything that's going on and everything that's coming. Bold is an instruction manual written for entrepreneurs who want to build businesses on the backs of these technologies. It's a complete how-to. If you want to up your mental game um, and really take advantage of what's going on there, the work we're doing at the Flow Genome Project is producing really spectacularly interesting effects and, you know, in people. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of resources. Peter runs Abundance 360, which I think, you know, you can go to Singularity University, you can attend Abundance 360. Um, you know, there's weekend events and week-long events and things like that. So there's lots of information out there and people out there um, who, are, who are, you know, really kind of building whole universes around the backs of these ideas. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. 
I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en- Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So now going on to the next technology, genomics and synthetic biology, you guys talk about quite a bit in bold. Um, what's, what's that look like now? What's the update? Where are we going? What's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that, so so the best example is my friend, Andrew Hessel. Andrew's one of the world's leading synthetic biologists and he's on staff at Autodesk. He's an Autodesk strengthest researcher. And what is a synthetic biologist doing on staff at a software company? Autodesk and Andrew believes that in the near future, instead of programming in ones and zeros, we're going to be programming in DNA. That's most of what we're going to be programming. So Andrew says, we're now today, we say, oh, there's an app for it. Tomorrow you're going to say, oh, there's an org for that. And org would be short for for organism. Hmm. So that's, I mean, that is where, you know, we are going with a huge chunk of this. We are, you know, programming life from scratch. I mean, you know, you just got to stop and think that, a couple of years ago, uh, an artist in Poland took jellyfish genes, the glow-in-the-dark jellyfish genes, inserted them into a cat and made a glow-in-the-dark cat. 
which on a certain level is sort of like one of those weird, stupid synthetic biology hacks that you're like, okay, whatever. But on another part, we are literally mucking with life and making art out of it. So that's interesting. And that's already like, that's already going on. We're using life to make art. That's interesting. That's never happened before. And what will, Um, what will, what will be something that will be, what will be an org that I can create that I can't currently create with computers? Well, so let's, so let's really talk about the advantages of synthetic biology. And I'll go back to Andrew. Andrew runs another company. It's actually a a nonprofit called uh, uh, the Pink Army Cooperative and is the world's first nonprofit end-to-one cancer research company. End-to-one meaning what individually customized cancer drugs. So what we've learned about cancer, what we've actually learned about almost all diseases with cancer, spectacular for this, is it's totally individual. If you get cancer, it's going to be totally different from the cancer I get. It's totally different from my neighbor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the best way to fight cancer is with individually customized cancer drugs. We can't do that now at all, but that's what synthetic biology unlocks. So it's totally personalized, customized medicine for one which is really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Can I change current DNA? So for instance, let's say, I mean, right now I'm like five foot nine. Can I be six foot three by changing my own DNA? No, it's, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking that, or I was just reading an article uh, in New Scientist uh, yesterday that was talking about they've identified four more genes that seemed in, in, in centurions, people who've lived over a hundred years, uh, that seem to confer really significant, uh, properties of longevity, right? One of them fights you off Alzheimer's another does something with cancer and blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking about, I was like, how, well, how long is it going to be until we can insert those genes into, you know, existing humans? Um, I, you know, gene therapy is real, right? It was that I always say with genetics. And so one of the interesting things about abundance and bold is, we made tons of predictions. We were very conservative, but we made tons of predictions. I am really proud to say that we were only wrong about one thing so far. Everything else where we've been wrong, we were wrong on the conservative side. We said robotics are coming, but wait 15 to 20 years for this. We did not see Google buying seven robotics companies the next year and jumpstarting the field or Amazon going to the drone business. So the stuff that we were wrong on, mostly we were wrong because we said it was going to happen 10 years out and it actually happened already. The thing we were wrong about is uh, biofuels, which have not delivered and turned out to be enormously complicated. And I think um, it's interesting, Peter and I had this discussion when we were writing the book and I said, I'm really hesitant to write about biofuels, not because I don't think they're really exciting, but every time we've mucked around with genetics, it's taken 30 or 40 years longer than we thought it was going to. And, you know, gene therapy being the first example, it was the, you know, we were writing about it and talking about it and excited about it in the 1970s, and it was still killing people into, you know, early, early into this decade. Um, and now we're starting to get the first gene therapy treatments on the market. So, you know, are you going to be mucking with your genes? Not for a while. Are you going to be mucking with your children's genes? Are we going to be designing our children? Yeah, I think that's going to happen. I mean, that's already going on at this point um, at, a, at a really significant level, and I think it's going to keep going. Well, what's another org, like thinking more in terms of like data, what's another org uh, kind of app as opposed to computer app that could be that you can make with one but not the other? So, for instance. Um, so, how about this? How about in the more, I mean, um, I wrote a, a piece with Andrew and Mark Goodman for The Atlantic where we, we covered a lot of this stuff. But one of the things, another example to come out of that article was 
imagine waking up in the morning and you pick up your toothpaste and you brush your teeth with your toothpaste and your toothpaste you know, has built-in microbes that diagnose illness across the boards and um, can adjust your biology accordingly. That's some things along those lines are coming. So right now we use all kinds of hardware to detect illness. And, you know, it may be as much as, oh, your toothpaste turns pink. Um, it detects something in your body. And then you pull out a lab on a chip smartphone and you run your blood work through it and you upload that blood work to Watson in the cloud who reads it and tells you what's wrong with you. And how those, long, are the, those are the those are the kinds of combination things that are coming. How long do you think it'll take for something like that? Like not that exact thing, but like something like that of that complexity. I don't know. Um, I, I don't have a good answer for you on on synthetic biology. I know that we are what people are working on right now is what they're calling the DNA typewriter, which is right now we can read genetic code. It's you know we're very fast at it. We've got it's very cheap now. Everybody, you can twenty three and me will you know read your genome. A couple of years ago, it was $100,000, and you know now it's under a couple hundred. So you know, huge progress in that. Next step is writing genomes. Right now, it's very, very expensive to write a genome. Only a handful of them have ever been written. Craig Venter wrote the first synthetic genome, right? The first artificial creature created in a, in a computer. Venter did that uh, 10 years ago. We've moved forward. They're working on, uh, he created a microorganism. He, now they're trying to do a yeast. They're moving forward with that, but they're trying to build a DNA typewriter that allows you to kind of create life. It's a user-friendly interface for synthetic biology, so anybody kind of can create life for scratch. And it's not very hard. Like there are hacker clubs all over the place for SynBio that you, in your city, you want to go play, muck around with biology and build creatures from scratch. Yes. There's a, hack, there's a hacker club in your city um, that will allow that they're everywhere. And what will, I, what will I do? Like, what will I make other than knowing that I made a new creature? Like, what can I, what can I make? I, I, I don't know what they're making at hacker clubs. Mm -hmm. Um, I really don't. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out though. It's on my list, <laughs> on my list of things to do. So, but all of this also begs the question of, you know, all of these things like this diagnosis that you, you know, using your toothbrush to diagnose and upload it to Watson and get cures and so on. Where's the limit on human aging when all this happens? When we're when we're living in VR and we have genomics all over our body, you know, doing things. What's what's the limit? How 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 old can we get? So, so I, I have no idea. I really, really, really don't. Um, and though I will tell you, you know, Human John Longevity Inc., which is Peter's uh, life extension company, basically, um, he believes that he can turn a hundred into the new forty. Hmm. Uh, or, um, or excuse me, 100 into the new 60. So he, he really thinks we can, we can very quickly add 25 to 40 years to our lifespan, um, you know, kind of in our lifetime kind of thing. So I don't know how, where this goes. I'm not, I've never, I've stayed away from this question because I am not sure I want to live that long. Like I'm very curious about what happens next. And I like it here. It's super, super interesting, but I may have had enough after 80 five years, you know, <laughs> you might get tired. I, I, like, I, yeah, like emotionally I, I mean, like, tired. I, like I'm, I'm kind of curious about what comes next. And, um, I, I just don't know. I have very mixed feelings about that one. Um, Peter and I, you know, have had arguments that he doesn't understand. He wants to live forever. And I'm like, well, okay, that's great. But you're making an awfully big, big bet that this is the best thing that there is. And, you know, I have no idea. I'm very much an agnostic about all these things. But I'm very, very curious. 
So, so let's talk about the, the, another technology that you talk about quite a bit in bold, which is uh, sensors. So since then, where are we at? Where are we going? What's happened that surprised you? So the answer, so where we're going is everybody's talking about the trillion sensor economy. There's a big meeting at Stanford where they think, you know, kind of it's getting to the point with the internet of things and everything is going to be connected and everything is going to be intelligent. We're going to move from a, a kind of a dumb world to a smart world. Um, and we're, you know, we're seeing this, you know, in, in bits and pieces already. Stuff that is surprising to me, and I think more needs, research needs to be done, but there are huge bandwidth carrying capacity issues that are unsolved to bring the Internet of Things online. So to me, that's one of the things that I'm looking at that I think is interesting. We're developing the sensors. They're getting cheaper and cheaper and smaller and smaller and better and better. And it's really cool with what's coming. But there are also some things we're not really paying attention to yet that are, I, I mean, I think we've solved them, but I think they're issues. But like, let's take, for instance, so there's the sensors and then there's the kind of um, how the data gets distributed. But let's take the sensors themselves. Like, let's say they get really, really great with facial recognition software. Is it a little bit scary that I can say, to, let, let's say I could say to my smartwatch, oh, where's Stephen Collar right now? And it goes out onto the Internet of Things and it says, oh, Stephen's in Boulder, Colorado skiing at this resort. Uh you know, is that a little scary? I, you know, it's funny because Peter often says like, you know, what's coming is infinitely available data, right? You want to know right. what you run parking lots. You want to know if your competitors' lots are full. You can, you know, instant access to whatever data you, you want. Did that to him, I think sounds like a really good thing. And to me, I'm a little more private and that doesn't sound like a really good thing. You know, I'm not going to be the first guy to buy one of those TVs that can now kind of read my mood in the room. That's not I that that's not interesting to me. A lot of my a lot of my friends, you know, have essentially you know argue for kind of you know the privacy is dead, radical openness argument, and you know I don't I'm uncomfortable by that. I am a big fan of kind of countercultural movements. I think countercultural movements have done a lot of great things in the, in the late 20th century for sure. And uh, they need to develop out of sight and on the edges and on the margins. And so I think these are going to be issues, social issues that we're going to have to deal with. Yeah. So, so, I mean, look, there's been so many developments. What's probably surprised you the most since Bold has come out, uh, out of all the new technologies that, that you've seen? And you've since written Tomorrowland, which is about some of these technologies, but what's, what's most surprised you? What's gained the most where are we at? The virtual reality is what has surprised me the most. Uh, I, how quickly we went from kind of fantasy to reality on that has, it, it's still surprising me. And that probably is like a cultural artifact. I, you know, I was in San Francisco in the 90s. Um, I remember when virtual reality kind of first got introduced and it wasn't there 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 and it, there and it, there and it was just hype. And so I, you know, I've always paid particular attention to it because it was just, it was in my mind so much. Um, but I, you know, to me, you know, I, I again, I, I think it's those, you know, the four exoduses that I mentioned earlier are really, you know, are really interesting to me. And I also think we're getting really good at kind of the, the neuropsychology, neurobiology and psychology. So our mental game, mental performance, what's coming, what's, what's becoming more and more possible there 
is really interesting to me. And, you know, I look back on the past five years and we're, we're talking about all these exciting changes, but I really think about just the past five years, the most exciting change that's really happened in terms of technology to me is just uh, tablet computing, which is not all that sophisticated when you think about it, but it's now essentially changed all of computing and how we do our communications and, you know, the smartphone and so on. But I can't imagine some of these things that you're talking about really happening soon, although I believe they will, you know, just based on, you know, kind of this exponential effect, like suddenly they'll be small and then they'll be huge. But what, what do you see is happening first that I'll be like, oh well, my God. Thought, the first totally flexible, like roll up screen, computer screen, mm -hmm. I just, you just, I said CES, they just kind of debuted one. And I, you know, that's one of the things that I've been, you know, waiting for because pretty soon we're not carrying like, First of all, we're going to, you know, we're going to be carrying like, you know, rolled up pieces of paper essentially in our backpacks through airports. You know, if you want to put your computer in a bin, it's going to be a rolled up piece of paper, basically. Um, that's, you know, stuff like that, I think, is really, you know, interesting and sexy. I think, you know, some of this stuff is incremental. I think, I think with virtual reality, we're going to see another explosion. I mean, you know, how long ago was the App Store? Think about, you know. Yeah, just like five or six years ago. Maybe a little longer. I think it was 2011. I could be wrong, but I think it's 2011. Um, yeah, so that that was but, I mean, life changing so for a lot of people. But know, not that's, a, that, that's an internet sized opportunity that we didn't nobody saw, and suddenly you know it's everywhere and it's changed everybody's life. I don't get lost anymore in cities, straight <laughs> right, cities. Right. I mean that's that's astounding. I've spent my entire life, right? I, you know, especially as an author, public speaking career, that kind of thing. I'm in cities. I'm driving places. I don't know where the hell I'm going. I'm getting lost. All the, I don't get lost anymore. That's pretty crazy. So, so it seems like you've got all these. Uh, so you've got your next two books planned. Uh, do you ever think about fiction? Because obviously, a lot of these ideas um, is sort of the next generation. Will will lead to the next generation of science fiction. So I don't know if you know that I started out as a as a novelist. Oh, my I didn't first know that. Book, yeah, my first book is a novel, and then there are actually two novels in drawers um, that uh, at some point I may revisit, and then I sort of made the switch to nonfiction. I have, I will tell you, I was literally in New York on the press tour with Peter for Abundance, and I like left our hotel room where I'd been doing radio interviews all day, and I walked outside to go get a hot dog or something to eat. I was starving, and by the time I got back, I had a fully formed cyberpunk novel in my head that I've been poking at and poking at. So there's a couple of sci-fi novels. Like Andrew Hessel, I mentioned earlier, we're dying to write the Blade Runner prequel. Ah, uh, I love that. Um, right, like how did Tyrell end up being Tyrell? Uh -huh. So, but, you know, that's another, that, that, that's one that, that, that's interesting to me too. So I think, you know, there's a couple cyberpunk books um, that are there. I stepped out of fiction. This is geeky writer talk, but when I started out as a fiction writer, I sort of wanted to be Thomas Pynchon or David Foster Wallace, that kind of writer. And I think both of those guys established challenges to how far you can push language right. in a certain way, right? And I like I always felt like I didn't want to jump back into fiction until I had sort of like figured out how I could build on what they were doing. And I have not, I don't know how to do that. Do like I can do it, but I can't do it in a way that I want my writing to be compelling. I, I all my books, I remember years ago, I was reading William Gibson's Neuromancer and I decided then and there that if William Gibson could bake AIs this thrilling and this exciting, all of my nonfiction writing should be that thrilling, that fun, like it should move you through the story that much. Um, but I also, if I'm going to jump back into fiction, I want to push on language a little bit and see if I could do some neat stuff there. 
And And I haven't solved it yet. So that's, yes, you're right, but there's writing challenges and kind of writing geekery stuff um, that I haven't yet solved. But I think at some point I will jump in and do a couple more novels because they're fun. But let me me challenge a little bit on the the writing geekery. Like, don't you think guys like Thomas Pynchon and, and David Foster Wallace sacrifice story for the sake of experimenting in, in language and they form. absolutely do and I don't want to sacrifice story for language that's why I haven't that's the puzzle because you, your nonfiction is very story driven and you know like the way yeah. you started Tomorrowland you're watching the, a guy who's been blind from birth about to see like boom that's story no, I agree. I, I have not solved it yet. I like. I want that level. What I want is there's a level of density. I don't need to do like the metaphysics, fiction, pyrotechnics, but there's a level of information density and and attitude or something. I don't. I can't even. I can't even put it into words. But I. That's sort of the puzzle I've been trying to solve um, for a while. I want it to be. I want it to be readable and fun and still kind of push, uh, push in interesting directions. Do you- I, I. I don't know how to do it. Every now and again, I read a book like um, Marlon Jones, Seven Killings, uh, which came out last year and is spectacular. And because it's written in Jamaican patois and sort of about the birth of reggae into the shower posse, the birth of the shower posse, um, it, he could do some really interesting things with language. And I thought he, you know, he didn't solve that paradox for me, but he did some interesting stuff that I, you know, there's clues that pop up, but I haven't, I haven't solved it. So I agree with you. I want. I don't want to sacrifice a story, but I still want to be able to do that kind of to convey that much information and those many sides and perspectives. What I'm less interested in, and the reason I sort of walked away from fiction, is I felt that a lot of fiction and the like. There's a requirement in fiction for people to just have emotions all the time, and so much of writing is about the like the quiet emotional state and all that. And I'm just not all that interested in it. I'm very interested in kind of heroic quest narratives, which have kind of, they're coming back, but they went out of style for a while as a mainstream focus, right? Nobody was writing Moby Dick anymore. We were going Raymond Carver and I went to treatment and my wife left me. And that's fine that, you know, maybe people want to read those stories. I don't, I'm not interested in it. And do you write every day? Like what's your process? I wake up between three thirty and four in the morning and I write, uh, till about, 7:38, and then usually I'll, I'll I'll grab a snack, and then you know if I'm co-writing something, I'll have a couple hour editing meeting. I'll go out and hike my dogs for an hour, uh, and I'll you know come back and do the rest of my work, and then you know go to the gym and work out, or go skiing, or go ride my mountain bike, or something along those. What lines. time do you go to sleep? Pretty early. I'm nine nine thirty. Okay, so like six. In the, six and and, and, by, and by the way, in the winter, if I'm like I'm getting up at three o'clock in the morning, and then you know, on it's powder day, and I'm on the hill at nine a.m. Um, until four, I've been known to be asleep by seven thirty. <laughs> it can happen. So, so once again, Stephen, I really appreciate you coming on the on the podcast. When's the next book going to come out? Because I want you on then. You'll, you'll it'll be your fifth time on my show, but we can Thank talk all you. about it. You guys, you've, you've been amazingly supportive. I, I can't thank you enough. The next book is called Stealing Fire. You're going to have to wait a little while. We're probably, you're probably a year out. I think winter 2017, so probably February 2017. We just finished the, uh, the third part, one of the books, three-part book. We just, so today, this morning, the first 33,000 pages got put to bed, or 33,000 words. I don't wow. know how many pages it is. Well, well, great stuff, and I'm and I'm appreciative of the the update and all these technologies, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll definitely talk again. I thank you for your curiosity. I thank you. I, I love the fact that every time I'm on, 
you hammer me on the jobs question because it's so important. It is really important. And I really, it's the one thing I have to figure out. Am I scared or not? Like, you know, if, if go, take driverless cars, that's going to put out the whole car industry and it doesn't translate into the, the driverless car industry. Jobs and population are the two things that I look at and that concern me the most. All right. Fair, fair enough. We don't have to have all the answers. It's good. Right. All right. Well, thanks again, Stephen. Uh, I will talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.